we've got a few chapters left here um, in Ezekiel, starting at chapter 40, and that's where we are tonight. So if you have your Bible there, I would uh, ask you to go ahead and open it and turn to chapter 40 of Ezekiel. And uh, this chapter is a, a chapter that leads us to a brand new section in this marvelous prophecy. It is about the millennia, the millennium reign of Christ. He's talking here about the temple, sometimes referred to as Ezekiel's temple, or it's sometimes referred to as the millennial temple. So that's what we're going to be looking at all the way through the end of the book of Ezekiel. And it is a, uh, it is a marvelous a section because it gives us this wonderful view of what is going to happen in the future. Now, some believe that uh, it's only symbolic, that it's not actually going to happen. I believe that it is going to happen. It's not happened yet, but it will happen. That is not only the millennium, but also this temple to be built during the millennial reign of Christ. And so what I want you to look with me at, first of all, is a chapter 40, and then look up at verse 29 of the previous chapter, just, just right above chapter 40. And here you have the kind of the closeout verse of um, this whole first part of the book. And I will not hide, this is God speaking, I will not hide my face from them anymore. For I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. And after that, you have an interval of about 12 to 13 years before Ezekiel gets this prophecy that we're studying starting tonight in chapter 40. He tells us exactly when this prophecy came to him and what was going on during that time. And it's important to remember those things because every verse, every chapter in the Bible, we need to know what's going on around it. We call that reading it in context. If you take a verse out of context, you can sometimes misunderstand it and misinterpret it. That's why the Bible is written as books or letters, and it's good to read them all the way through, and it's good to study them uh, all the way through, uh, although there's certainly other valid ways to study the Bible and to preach through the Bible. But uh, we've, we, take, we take this approach uh, on Wednesday nights, especially uh, in Ezekiel, and then before this, Last fall, if you were with me, we did the book of Exodus, and so I'm going to refer to some of that tonight as well. But just to, uh, again to remind you, because we were, we've been gone now for two weeks, it's two weeks ago since we were here, uh, that, that the, the, the battle or the war that's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, Gog and Magog, is the battle that will happen just after the rapture of the church. It will happen, I believe, during the tribulation period, that seven-year period when the church will be raptured out of the world. We will be in heaven with the Lord Jesus for that seven-year period called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And while we are experiencing that wonder and glory 
in heaven, the great tribulation, the seven years, it's called the tribulation, the first half of it, the great tribulation, the second half of it. That's when the Antichrist will be revealed. I don't think he will be revealed before the church is gone. And there also will be then the one world government, one world religion, the battle or the war of Gog and Magog, exit uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then at the end of that seven-year period is going to come the second coming of Christ, which is described for us in Revelation 19 and 20 and other places. At, well, 20 starts the millennium. Revelation 19 is uh, the battle of Armageddon when Jesus comes and defeats uh, the forces of hell. And then during the millennial reign of Christ is when the temple that we're reading about here will be built. And then um, the, uh, then there will be, uh, after the millennial, excuse me, after the millennial reign of Christ is when uh, we have uh, Armageddon and so on. So we'll get into all that in due time. But what I want you to look with me at now is starting at verse 1 of chapter 40 of Ezekiel. We're talking tonight about hope. And it's necessary to have hope. And we'll see why in just a moment. Look at verse 1 through verse 4 of Exodus chapter 40. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured... On the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. Now, if you'd like to know the exact uh, year that he's talking about, it is the year 573 B.C. That's when he had this vision where God, in vision form, takes him to Israel. He takes him to uh, a mountain where he can see what's going on there. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you, for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Father, we thank you. For your word, we pray that you will burn your word into our hearts tonight. We need the hope that Ezekiel is speaking of here in these passages. So, Lord, we pray that even as you gave this message to Ezekiel, to give your ancient people, the uh, Israelites, hope during their season, Lord, we receive it tonight as you're giving hope to all of us, because, Lord, we live in a time which in some ways seems virtually hopeless. But, Lord, as long as you're alive and that's forever, and as long as you're reigning and that's forever, then there's always hope. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you tonight. We pray you'll speak to our hearts 
that we might hear what you're saying to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' sweet name, amen. Now, over the next uh, four chapters, we're going to see various aspects of hope. So point number one for your outline is this, hope for the city. Hope for the city. Put yourself, if you can, in the place of these Israelites who had been removed from Jerusalem and removed from their hometown, their home country. They were now hundreds of miles away in Babylon. They were told to stay there, uh, build houses there, uh, develop businesses there, have children, raise your families. You're going to be there for a long time. And they're, at least obviously, for the first several years, they were still very concerned and and uh, hoping to go back to Jerusalem someday soon. Well, a long time has passed. And now, 25 years after Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies, God sends this message to his prophet Ezekiel to give them some hope. And the first thing that Ezekiel sees when God takes him in vision form to a high mountain uh, looking from north to south toward the city of Jerusalem, what does he see? He sees the structure of a city. So the people who are going to hear this message, the people who are going to read this message, the people who are going to receive this message, the Hebrew people are going to rejoice when they see that the city is standing again. There's hope for the city because God, though he has punished his people, though they have fallen away from him, though they have been guilty of much idolatry and all kinds of sin, yet God, he has punished them, but there's coming a day when he's going to restore the city that has been destroyed. And that surely must have given them hope because where they were, They wondered if they would ever get back to a city, and if they were, would they ever recognize the city? The city for them represented one aspect of hope. And you know, we live in a time in our country and in the world where millions and millions of people live in cities. Hundreds of thousands of people live here in our city of Memphis. Ours is a large city, but there's many cities that are much larger than ours. You can drive through the city streets of Memphis. You could drive through the city streets of New York City, for example, or Los Angeles or places uh, around the world, and you'll see people who who are discouraged. You'll see people who are downcast. You'll see perhaps many homeless people. You'll see folks who uh, are suffering perhaps from uh, mental uh, diseases of some kind. You'll see people who are hopeless because of perhaps poor decisions that they themselves have made or uh, they've been victimized by someone, victims of crime or whatever it may be. There are many, many people in the inner cities as well as in the countryside, but in the inner cities that have lost hope. They've just given up They don't know what to do or where to turn. Well, with Jesus, there's always hope. And the hope for the city is the same in Memphis, Tennessee tonight 
is the same as the hope for a city anywhere in the world tonight, and it's always been the same hope. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in Jesus. Jesus never fails. People will fail. You and I have failed others, haven't we? Other people have failed us sometimes, but Jesus never fails. So if there's ever a time when the message of hope needs to be delivered to the people of the world, it certainly is now. Another reason that people have uh, kind of lost hope is uh, the prices of gasoline, the price in the supermarket. I see uh, reports, and I'm sure you have as well. Some people are deciding uh, what they can buy they have to buy food for their family, so what are they going to give up? Inflation is just a, another tax that's eating away uh, our earnings. And so there are people who are hopeless. There are people who have given up. There are people who don't know what to do. And you and I have the message that can change their lives. And the Lord has entrusted it uh, to us. He's entrusted it to his church. And uh, you and I have the answer you and I have, the, have been entrusted with the story of Jesus, that wonderful story that changes lives. So these people of ancient Israel who were living in Babylon, they needed hope, and they saw hope in the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. But there was something else that also would give them hope. And let's continue reading now in chapter 40 at verse 5. Now, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a hand breadth. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. All right, point number two, there is hope for the temple. As I mentioned earlier, and as you know, the temple had been destroyed. This was, um, this was Solomon's temple that he had built when he was king some 400 years prior to this. It had stood over those four centuries as a picture and as a symbol, as a real building, of course, but as a picture and symbol of God's presence with his people. Back when we studied the book of uh, Exodus last fall, we came to chapter 25, and in verse 8, it is where the Bible says that God said, build a tabernacle because I want to dwell among my people. The tabernacle, which was a tent, and it was moved around when the children of Israel moved from place to place during that 40 years of, uh, that they were in the wilderness. But that was a physical representation, the, temp, the, the tabernacle was. It was a physical representation of the presence of God with them. Now, God would manifest his presence and did every single day for them. He was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And from time to time, uh, that uh, pillar would uh, come down into the tent of meeting and Moses would go in and meet with him. Uh, but there was, um, there was this tent that was the, the, uh, the assurance uh, among the people of God that God was with them, that he wanted to be with them, 
and that they could relish in his presence. But what, what's going on now? Now, the Israelites are away from the place where the temple was. They are in Babylon, and they know that the temple does not stand any longer. They know that the temple has been destroyed. Well, if the temple has been destroyed, that physical presence of God, that physical uh, uh, statement of God's presence with his people, does that mean that God is no longer with his people? Well, if they thought that, then Ezekiel's vision here was meant to give them hope. God had not abandoned his people. The temple would be rebuilt one day. And because they could hear this prophecy, because they could understand what the prophet Ezekiel was communicating to them, that was something that would give them hope. So not only was their city going to be restored, also the temple, the very presence of God, that building that represented God's presence among them was also going to be rebuilt. So who is this man that uh, is with Ezekiel? He is an angel, no doubt, who is um, a guide for Ezekiel as he takes him on a tour now through the temple so he can show Ezekiel what is in the temple and what is around the temple. For example, the courtyards, the walls, and so on. And notice here, uh, if you will look back at verse 3, he had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. So what's he going to do with this line of flax and this measuring rod? Well, verse 5 gives us a little more information. He said, in the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. All right, so let me explain what this means. A cubit was generally about 18 inches. It was the measurement from a man's elbow to the tip of his middle finger, and that's approximately 18 inches. But this particular cubit was known as the royal cubit because you had to add some length to the 18 inches. Because he says here in verse 5, in the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long, each cubit, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. A handbreadth was the distance between, uh, on your palm, between your, your, uh, your pointer finger and your little finger, okay? And that is about three inches. And so a royal cubit is approximately 21 inches. So this man has this rod in his hand that is six cubits. That is, it's 21 inches times six, which is approximately 10 feet or 10 and a half feet. So this man's got this rod in his hand. It is a measuring stick, and he's also got a line of flax It is a measuring line. He will sometimes use the line to measure. He will sometimes use the rod to measure. But everywhere they go over these next several chapters, we're going to see that this man uh, measures just about everything that's described here. And, And it's described in terms of 
how many rods uh, uh, long it was or how many rods wide it was. In fact, the next several verses all the way to the end of chapter 40, which is a long chapter, it has 49 verses, uh, that's what they're doing. They're going from place to place, uh, and he is measuring it. For example, he went to the gateway which faced east, and he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide, and the other threshold was one rod wide. So he's measuring that. He'll measure the vestibule. He'll measure the inside gate. Uh, he will measure the courts around uh, the, uh, the temple. He's doing all of this to be very precise and very specific because, that, and by the way, this is one reason I believe that this is going to be a literal temple. You would not need all of these exact dimensions unless you're going to build it. You'd just say, well, it's just there's a building there and there's a court, you know, courtyard around it. But there are all of these very specific measurements and very specific uh, pieces of uh, this uh, temple and the courtyards around it. And so this temple that will be built uh, was, uh, was far in the future for these Hebrews back in 573 B.C., and it's in, still in the future for us. We don't know how much longer it's going to be, but we know it's going to be at least, if the rapture were to happen tonight, it's going to be at least seven more years uh, before the millennial reign starts. But if, it's, if the rapture happens 10 years from now or 100 years from now, you'll have to, have to add seven years onto that. But uh, whenever it is, it's still somewhere out there in the future. But it's going to happen, and it's going to happen on God's timetable. Can you see how that would bring about hope in their heart? God has not abandoned them. This physical presence of the temple would remind them that, that they were the people of God, that God still had a plan and purpose for their life, and that if they would simply follow God's purpose and plan for their life, he would bless them tremendously and abundantly. And so you have the people of God, these ancient Hebrews, in needing hope, they found hope in the city being reconstructed. They found hope in the new temple that would be built during the millennial reign of Christ. Of course, they didn't know anything about the millennial reign of Christ back then. There were, there were references to the, uh, to the millennium all throughout, uh, especially the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, and uh, Ezekiel, and others. But for them, they didn't really understand that it would be the millennium. They just knew it would be something out there in the future. And so we, go, we look now at point number three in chapter 41. And here we find hope for holiness. Hope for holiness. Look with me now at uh, verses 1 through 4 of Ezekiel chapter 41. Then he brought me into the sanctuary and measured the doorposts six cubits wide and one cubit and six cubits wide on the out other side, the width of the tabernacle. The width of the entryway was ten cubits, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits 
on this side and five cubits on the other side. And he measured its length, 40 cubits, and its width, 20 cubits. Also, he went inside and measured the doorpost, two cubits, and the entrance, six cubits high, and the width of the entrance, seven cubits. He measured the length, 20 cubits, and the width, 20 cubits, beyond the sanctuary. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. So now we're mo- we've moved inside the uh, temple, and inside the temple you have what is called here the sanctuary. Look at verse 1. He brought me into the sanctuary. That, that room was the main room inside the temple. And he describes it here with the dimensions and so on. And um, it would correspond to, in the tabernacle, it would correspond to the holy place. Now, again, to go back to Exodus, when God gave to Moses the instructions on building the tabernacle, it took about 13 chapters in the book of Exodus for God to describe to Moses what he wanted and for them to build the tabernacle. In Ezekiel, in these chapters, it takes about nine chapters for God to describe uh, this, te- this temple, this millennial temple, to Ezekiel. So you see, God is very precise, very particular what he wants, and he wants it followed uh, exactly because he's given to his people the plans that he wants them to follow. So again, going back to the tabernacle, when, when the tabernacle was planned and then built, there were actually two rooms as a part of the tabernacle. There was the holy place, which was the first room that the priest would go into when he entered the, the tent, the tabernacle. And inside that holy place would have the table of showbread, if you remember that, the altar of incense, and also the uh, candelabra, the, the, uh, the, the candlestick. That, that was the furniture that was inside the holy place. And that's what is being described here as the sanctuary. That's the same uh, room. It's the, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the identical room, although you don't see here the descriptions of any of that particular furniture in Ezekiel's temple. And then if a person and only one person could do this a year, the high priest, were to go into the next room. It's called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And the high priest could go in there only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And there was only one piece of furniture inside the Holy of Holies. And that was, as I'm sure you remember, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a box a wooden box overlaid with gold. On top of it was a gold lid. It had handles on each side of it so the priest could carry it. There were cherubim made of gold on each end of the box that overlooked. They had their heads down and they looked toward the center of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. 
and God would manifest his presence there on the Day of Atonement every year. Uh, and so that's the complementary uh, room that Ezekiel sees here in his vision in Ezekiel chapter 41. Look at verse 4 again. He measured the length, 20 cubits, and the width, 20 cubits, beyond the sanctuary. That's past the sanctuary, past the first room. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. And so he, um, he, he is communicating here to Ezekiel that God's holy place is going to be among his people. And that speaks of the holiness of God, that God is holy. And for us to remember and to confess that God is holy reminds us that we are not. That's why it was so hard for, for the high priest even to go into the Holy of Holies because human beings, we're sinful. We were conceived with a sin nature. We are born in sin. We have a, a, a tendency to sin. When we have an opportunity to sin, as we grow older, we do. We choose to sin. So we are sinners because we choose to sin, and we choose to sin because we are sinners. We are sinners, and therefore our sin separates us from God. He did something about our problem, and because of what he did, we can receive as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we can have our sin paid for on the cross of Jesus. We trade our sin for the righteousness and holiness of Jesus. And that's the best trade you'll ever make. We give up the sentence that sin gave to us. Our sentence was death and separation from God forever. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, reversed that sin by sending his son to pay the penalty for our sins. He himself was our substitute on that awful cross. God's holiness will not be compromised. So many people today only want to talk about the love of God. And we must talk about the love of God because God is love. But that's not all God is. He is also holy and he is just. And because he is just, he must punish sin. And we cannot become holy until we acknowledge that we need that forgiveness and receive that forgiveness through repentance and faith. You cannot earn it, but you do have to receive it. And then after it's received, Jesus Christ is our righteousness, 
as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he has made unto us wisdom and sanctification and redemption and righteousness. He is our sanctification, which is simply another word for holiness. So even as these ancient Hebrews could see that God's holiness would still be in their presence, it was certainly something that would give them hope. God would be among them, not as their judge at that time, but as their holy father and the one who would lead them on forever. So there's hope. There's hope for the city. There's hope because of the temple. There's hope because of the holiness of God. And finally, there is hope for the glory of God. Look with me now in chapter 43, verses 1 through 5, and then in verse 10. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face." And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Here is hope for the glory to return to the temple. If you remember, God's glory had departed the temple. Ezekiel saw it. And I'll give you the verse references if you'd like to write these down. Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 19, Ezekiel saw God's glory depart from the temple and head east of the temple to the Mount of Olives. And then in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 23, Ezekiel saw the glory of God depart from the city. So first it departed from the temple and went to the east, and then the glory of God departed from the the Mount of Olives and ascended back to heaven. But now when we look at Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel sees the glory of God return to the temple. And from where does the glory of God return? From the east, from the same way that the glory left, the glory is going to return to that wonderful, marvelous temple. And when Ezekiel sees the glory of God, uh, when the glory appeared in this vision to him, look how it affects Ezekiel. The visions, verse, uh, uh, verse 3, the end of verse 3, the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. It's exactly what he did in Ezekiel chapter 1 when he had that vision of heaven. God opened the heavens to him, and the first thing that he did was fall on his face. By the way, it's the first thing that John the Apostle did in Revelation chapter 1 when he saw the resurrected Christ. 
in all of his glory. John, the Bible says in, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, I fell on my face as dead. You, a human being cannot experience the full glory of God uh, without falling on their face. We can't really experience the full glory of God. Uh, we need much uh, glory, uh, much grace uh, to experience what glory that we can. But here, he, he fell on his face because he could not look at the fullness of the glory of God. And one of these days, you and I are going to have the privilege of seeing the glory of God. But when we see that glory of God in his fullness in heaven, we will be, we'll have, we'll, we'll be different because we won't have our sin nature. Uh, we won't be affected by the things of this earth. We will be able to experience the fullness of God there, unlike what we can now. You and I see through a glass darkly. You and I only know in part. You and I see what we see is wonderful, but we can only see in part. One of these days, we're going to see much, much better. And then look at verse 10. This is where uh, the angel speaks to Ezekiel, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. So what does that mean? It means this. It means that Ezekiel was to record the measurements of the temple. And also, I didn't talk about this. We'll talk about this uh, next week. Uh, there were also duties for the priests to perform in this millennial temple. We'll talk about that. And he said, I want you to go back to the people and describe what you've seen to them. And look again at the end of verse 10. That they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. Here's what God is saying to them. If you can look at this temple, or if you can hear the descriptions of this temple and realize that though you have sinned mightily, God is still in love with you. He is still making provision for you. And in his mercy, he is going to release you and call you back to your home, to the temple, to his glory. If you're not ashamed of your sin, then I don't know what would cause you to be ashamed. Because even though You've broken all the laws of God. He still loves you. You should be ashamed of your sin, but grateful eternity, eternally for the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. They were to be given hope. You and I also have a vision of hope because this old world is falling apart. And everything that's not nailed down is coming up. But God is in control. 
And he has a plan and purpose. It's good to be on his side, isn't it? Sometimes people talk about God being on their side. Well, I think it's better for us to realize we're on his side. (laughs) Wherever he is, that's where I want to be, on his side. 